I like your top. It's a it's Buffy pajamas. I just turned uh, level thirty on Pokemon Go as I was waiting for. Thank you for the delay. I'm now smug. Congratulations! <laughs> I'm very proud of thank you. Thank you. It takes a long time once you're up and past twenty five, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like a million experience points for me to get up to level thirty four now. I, I'm still loving Pokemon Go. I wish the battle thing was back. Since you told me it was a thing, I was playing it like all the time. And yeah. I'm trying to watch how much I'm playing it because if it starts feeling like an obligation, it starts stressing me out. Yeah. The daily tasks, at least, aren't very time-consuming. Yeah, Catch and Pokestop are fine because they expanded the radius slightly, so now the two within reach of my house are within reach of my house. Exactly. When I had to leave the house for it, it was very good when I was hermiting and needed a reason to leave the house every day, but it became a source of stress. Yeah. I am... Pokemon is one of those very few nostalgia things that still absolutely hooks me. I think Niantic was very clever. It is very, very well done. I have no urge to play It's full of fucking bugs. And like, if you go on the Reddit, the Silph Road, I think it's called. Yeah, no, I'm on that People hate it. (laughs) But at the end of the day, it's... I can't imagine designing a game like that and making it work 20% of the time so (laughs) yeah no I think it does really well Uh, considering it's very rare they have to close huge parts of the game for server maintenance as well yeah yeah exactly Um, I found myself going down an internet rabbit hole where I was reading a lot about game design and game writing which is something like on paper I would love to get into but realistically it's impossible to get into without being incredibly low level and not really paid for years um the writing aspect yeah. of it, yeah, I'm not really interested in the technical aspects of coding and game design. Oh, I was, oh okay, yeah. yeah, then yes. I'm more interested <laughs> in, yeah, I'm more interested in the writing aspect, but you need to know some of the coding because you've got to know how the medium you're writing for works. Same way like writing yeah. for theatre, you need to know Sure, yeah, you need to know what's work. possible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was one of those, oh, I could get very into this if I had a bit more time. The coding side of that is one of those cliffs of um expertise i was on about like you're like oh this is interesting this is interesting shit i'm on the edge of this drop (laughs) i do not have time to devote my entire life to that right now uh back away slowly yeah the reason i started looking at it was um someone was asking uh like one of the writers for Dragon Age was doing like an AMA thing on Twitter mm-hmm. and someone was asking, why aren't there more conversations with companions on this topic? Why aren't there more conversations outside of the romance line? Why don't you get a sex scene where this guy takes his helmet off? <laughs> and he was trying to explain like, this is the size team we need for writing that sort of thing. This is how many people it takes to make a scene like that happen. And yeah. then if you consider that would be very specific to romancing him, only about 20% of the players of the game would actually then get to that scene and we'd have to pull people off other scenes to yeah. make that one happen. And he was talking about how these dialogue trees work and how you have like conversations with NPCs that don't repeat and how you can have all these different dialogue chains with characters based on background conversation that they overhear and stuff. And he was like, it's yeah. huge. It's a huge, giant, complicated web. It's really fascinating. Was that just on normal um, AMA, the Reddit or...? 
no, no, it was just a chat on Twitter thing. It was like an okay. unofficial. I'm here for ten minutes. Ask me questions, <laughs> and he spent most of the ten minutes answering questions about the writing because obviously, it was an interesting thing to talk about. My Oxter English Dictionary arrived. Ooh. I'm very excited. Ooh. Ah, it's very nice. It's from 1985. I've had a chance to have uh, more of a flick through it than last time I talked to you. And whoever put it together, I think was a bit horny. Not only are there a lot of sexual words, but a lot of the non-sexual words, uh, the quotes they've used to put them in context are rather post-water sound um, but I haven't highlighted those ones because uh, we are not post-water shared today no it's very early it's very early um, for me it's 10 o'clock in the morning which is let's be honest five hours earlier than we normally start so well done us yeah let's forget why <laughs> we don't talk about the episode we forgot to record I mean, I already told all our Twitter followers, but... <laughs> but yeah, so I highlighted a couple of the cool, obscure words, a couple of my favourites. I really like the fact that apparently lapidate means to throw rocks at. So um, dilapidate is rocks yeah, falling off. Yeah, yeah. So like a dilapidated building is very casually throwing rocks at you, I guess. Um, <laughs> so I'm just thinking of like the most dilapidated thing we have in our town which is the ruins of the old abbey and I'm just yeah. picturing the ruins like pelting rocks at tourists well maybe they're like um I don't even remember which Pratchett book this is in but the very old trees that kind of blink and a season's past oh um, yeah yeah it's like that in building form so really they are assaulting us but we don't notice I can't believe I got beaten up by a building. I know, it's terrible. Uh, another one I rather liked is uh, cetaceously, and I picked this because it has a silent P and is therefore relevant. Marvellous. Um, but it means like or of a parrot. So perhaps There's if, a word if you were for dressed that. in beautiful, colourful clothes, you would be dressed cetaceous or in a cetacene fashion. I'm really happy that there's a word for like or of a parrot. I know. I don't know how many of these, by the way, are neologian. Ne no, thank you. Yes. I just made up for whatever they found it in. Um, but I don't really care. Um, I like, I didn't realize that oxter was the word for, it was like a slang term for armpit. Oh, yeah. I should have mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, uh, yeah, English dialect, but I can't remember where. Did you find Northern. out? Northern. Northern. I know okay. it's, yeah, it's Northern and Scottish, I think. One of our Twitter followers mentioned it. And then one uh. of our other Twitter followers mentioned that it's a very similar word in Dutch. Ooh, which like means Dutch. Northern would make sense. Yes, yes, it would. The trade is. My the listeners can't see me vaguely indicating that I think there's some trade routes between the Dutch and up of the country. The, the vague I'm hand good. gestures show a deep knowledge of geography and historical diplomatic ties. Yes, just I'm trust just, us. Yeah. <laughs> can't verbalise it. Believe me, it's there in the gestures. Um, and the last one I highlighted was uh, Vespertine which is having to do with twilight, um, so like crepuscular, but sounds less like it should be something to do with an insect. Um, These are all perfectly cromulent words. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
I really, oh, well, I just turned to the end and I really like this one as well. So you get a bonus. Zeppelinically swollen in the sense of being filled with gas, like a Zeppelin. Zeppelinically. Zeppelinically. Oh, God, yeah. that's gorgeous. Yeah. So, oh, wow. Zeppelinically. Okay. Well, I'm going to work that into my next bit of writing, even if it is about fucking broadband or whatever. Um. <laughs> It'd be a good way to refer to someone's ego. Oh, yeah. His ego swelled zeppelinically. Yeah. I'm going to try and write that into my food blog. You should. Doesn't actually exist yet. Yeah, but it's a uh, proto food blog. I have seen a post for it. About cake. Have you decided what your blog is going to be called yet? I'm thinking Two Hats Cook because I'm Two Hats Joe. Yeah. Never explain why. No. God. (laughs) Shall we make a podcast? Oh, yes, let's make a podcast. All right. Hello and welcome to The Two Shall Make Kifra, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book in the Discworld series by Terry Pratchett, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen-Young. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part three of our discussion of Pyramids, the seventh Discworld novel. And part three encapsulates books three and four of pyramids which is fairly uniquely structured yes we've got the book of the new sun and the book of 101 things a boy can do (laughs) sun spelt with an o to make a subtle but effective pun yeah some of the uh, written puns really get lost on our audio only podcast (laughs) yeah (laughs) fuck me this is a full of puns book though isn't it like i genuinely found myself rolling my eyes once which i don't think i've ever done it was the air today gone tomorrow oh yeah that one yeah (laughs) like you know i roll my eyes but then i thought of terry pratchett writing it and giggling to himself and it made me really pleased yeah no that's fair except (laughs) My loathing of puns varies a lot. Sometimes I really hate them. Sometimes I can cope. Normally I'm good with them with Terry Pratchett. but It's lucky you have some level of tolerance because otherwise I don't think our friendship would have lasted this long. No, no. But you are at least decent enough to accompany all of your puns with an awkward finger guns and then feel shame (laughs) afterwards. So if only there was some audio equivalent of finger guns. It's probably my awkward laugh that I do after terrible jokes. I love your little awkward laugh after terrible yeah. jokes. It pleases me. <laughs> right, note on spoilers. Mm. This is a spoiler light podcast. Obviously, heavy spoilers for the book we're on, Pyramids. Uh, but we'll avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld novels, and we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there. So you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Indeed. Managed to do that all in one breath. Well done. Do you have anything else to follow up on from last week? I probably but if i do i didn't write it down excellent so i'm organized and professional (laughs) previously on pyramids tepic takes his place on the throne of jelly baby and quickly realizes that the power lies with the priest an architectural standoff ends in the new king ordering a massive pyramid with all the trimmings for his annoyed father brackets deceased Construction progresses impossibly quickly in several dimensions, despite royal attempts at bonhomie ending in amputation. Meanwhile, ex-hand Mason Tracy is sentenced to death by Crocs, but finds herself whisked away from her cell by a mysterious assassin. Spoiler, 
It's Tepic. She isn't impressed. Still, after a bit of funereal hide-and-seek, she joins the rebellious young monarch on camelback and escapes a vengeful Dios. The pair leaves the kingdom, just in time as it promptly vanishes. Must be something to do with all that geometry. Never trust geometry. Good. (laughs) So, do you want to summarise what happens in this bit, and then we'll talk about it in our usual fashion? Yes, I apologise. This is something of a lengthy summary because quite a lot happens. It does. Uh, So we begin in book three with Tepic and Tracy on the Ephibian border staring at a distinct lack of Old Kingdom while you bastard choose haughtily. Side note, love an adverb. Tracy gives Tepic a massage as they contemplate making water. Meanwhile, back at the gel, Toclasp wanders through the wreckage of the Great Pyramid. He discovers his son, 2A, has gone a bit sideways. He's got a touch of the old dimensional displacement, don't you know? As Tepic, Tracy and Hugh Bastard meet some philosophers, the gods of the Old Kingdom manifest. Dios panics and priests start getting literal as gods play for control of the sun. Kumi attempts a coup, but Dios rallies around his rage and starts screaming at the impertinent gods. Mood. Tepic goes to the tavern with his new philosophy friends. King Tepikaimon wakes up, back in his well-preserved body, and attempts some reassembly, terrifying Dill and Gurn. At a raucous symposium, Pythagonal explains to Tepic that pyramids use up new time, and the Great Pyramid has turned the dimensions through 90 degrees, meaning gels had to pop out of the universe for a mo. Tepic briefly wonders if the tortoise Tracy is feeding is in fact a god, call forward. As they contemplate their next move, they bump into Tepic's old friend Chidder. To clasp and his sons hide from Vut, the vulture-headed god. Tepic and Tracy have dinner on Chidder's boat. Chidder suggests using Tepic's missing country for a cheeky bit of tax evasion. A wine-soaked Tepic dreams of Kuft, the founder. Tepic gets a few illusions shattered as Kuft theorises that the camels probably called gel into being because they were a bit thirsty. The next morning, Tepic goes for a swim and collects his camel. King Tepikaimon starts releasing his relatives from their pyramids. Tepic takes a look at the front lines as Sort and Afib prepare for war. He uses severe dehydration and a stick to convince you bastard to complete the complicated mathematics needed to re-enter the Old Kingdom. End of book three. The beginning of book four sees Tepic and you bastard in the dimensionette of the Sphinx. After applying logic to riddles, a dangerous pastime, they make it back to the gel. Dios agrees to intercede with the gods as battalions of dead kings begin to march. Well, lurch. The army of the dead finds Kuft's pyramid empty. Back on home turf, Tepic finds himself empowered by the people's belief and successfully parts the gel as the flailing crocodiles get stoned. The legions of the dead run into some translation trouble at Kuft's pyramid. The armies of Sort and Afib face off as Tepic runs to the necropolis, now well populated with the reanimated corpses of artisans, etc. Uh, the soldiers wait in wooden horses as Tepic confronts to Clusp and tries to turn off the overturned pyramid. Kumi faces off against the dead monarchs. It's revealed that Dios is in fact 7,000 years old. Uh, the footnote keeper of history has been killing time to preserve the rituals. The immense belief in Dios allows him to pause the petulant rulers and the gods he created approach as Tepic tries to flare the Great Pyramid with a little help from his ancestors. Things go boom. In the aftermath, Jell reappears, surprising the armies in their wooden horses. And as a boat arrives in Jell, the kingdom begins to repair itself with Tepic overseeing. Chidder and Tracy surprise Tepic with a bit of carpet. Tepic discovers Tracy is in fact his sister and abdicates the throne to her. She starts to make some changes, ordering a bridge over the Jell that cheers the Teclusps t- up, if not the crocodiles. Dill discovers olive stuffing, death moves on the monarchs, Tepic says his farewells, and Dios goes back. Wow. That is a lot for, what, just over 100 pages, was it? 
So, uh, I think about 150. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is a longer book than some of them. I was comparing it to, you dropped off the next book for me uh-huh. the other day, and this is a, a lot thicker. Um, mm. Helicopter and Loincloth Watch. Yeah. Page 290 in my edition, ah. as Tepic is talking to Kuft in his dream. Kuft says, that's just public relations, he said. I mean, look at me. Do I look patriarchal? Tepic gave him a critical appraisal. Not in that loincloth, he admitted. It's a bit, well, ragged. So we've got a ragged loincloth. I think a ragged loincloth is quite a patriarchal costume. I think we can call anything. I don't. I'm just being contrary. I don't have anything to back that up. I'm sorry. (laughs) I wasn't expecting to have opinions on loincloths today, so there we are. Well, you know, that seems like why we have the corner. It's not so I can have opinions on loincloths, it's just so I can highlight that loincloths and helicopters turn up fairly often in Terry Pratchett books. Oh, I forgot to write it down, but there are elephants mentioned, war elephants. They kept yes. breeding bigger elephants. Uh, Which aren't actually really helpful. <laughs> yeah, I didn't read much about it because I have a feeling researching war elephants will upset me. Yes, that's fair. So let's just assume everybody was fine. Yes, uh, <laughs> our irrelevant elephant corner this week consists of we don't want to know if the elephants were unhappy yes <laughs> um so what's next favorite quote um i'm not sure which of these came first because our editions are so drastically different so i'll do mine because it's short um and i think you've been foreshadowing for the last two episodes a fairly lengthy extra it's a little lengthy <laughs> Um, so this is when Dill and Gern and Tepikimont, uh, recently deceased, are kind of coming to the realisation that if he's now awake, then his ancestors may be as well. It has already been remarked that Dill had a very poor imagination. In a job like his, a poor imagination was essential but his mind's eye opened on a panorama of pyramids stretching along the river and his mind's ear swooped and curved through solid doors that no thief could penetrate. And it heard the scrabbling and it heard the hammering and it heard the muffled shouting. I just Mm. think that's a very good drug pause of a paragraph. I enjoy that. Yes. Me too. And then they go and smash their way in. Yes. I do like the slow, ooh, creepy holler, horror, 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 smash. Yes. So if you would like to take a very deep breath. <laughs> I did, I, it, like, as soon as I read the whole book the first time, I knew I was going to do this, and I'm not even slightly sorry. No, very so this is Coppolima at the symposium telling the story of the Sortian Wars. And this is uh, the the greatest storyteller in all of uh, a thief, right? Yeah, I think Kefalima is meant to be like a weird combination of Herodotus and Homer because this uh. is a story that Homer would tell, but this is very much written. Herodotus was somewhat. I don't know if you've ever read Herodotus's histories. Um, Some it, it extracts from them are in almost everything about classical history, but I've never sat down and read a full volume. I've never sat down and read a full volume because life is short. But he had a very rambling style. Ah. The, well, I tried reading them because of American Gods, their reference near the beginning. Uh, yes. Anyway. Anywho. So yes, the greatest storyteller on the disc. 
You see, what happened was he'd taken her back home and her father, this wasn't the old king, this was the one before, the one with the what's name? Uh, the one with the what's name. He married some girl from over Ella Reeveway. She had a squint. What was her name now? Again with a P or an L. One of them letters anyway. Her father owned an island out on the bay, bay there. Papalos, I think it was. No, tell a lie, it was Crinix. Anyway, the king, the other king, he raised an army and they, Eleanor, that was her name. She had a squint, you know, but quite attractive, they say. When I say married, I trust I do not have to spell it out for you. I mean, it was a bit unofficial. Um, anyway, there was this wooden horse and after they got in, did I tell you about this horse? It was a horse. I'm pretty sure it was a horse or maybe it was a chicken. Forget my own name next. It was what's name's idea, the one with the limp. Yes, the limp in his leg. I mean, did I mention him? There'd been this fight. No, that was the other one, I think. Yes. Anyway, this wooden pig. Damn clever idea. They made it out of thing. Tip of my tongue. Wood. But that was later, you know, the fight. Yes. Nearly forgot the fight. Yes. Damn good fight. Everyone's banging on their shields and yelling. What's name's armor shone like shining armor. Five and a half that fight between thingy. Not the one with the limp. The other one. What's name? Had red hair. You know, tall fellow. Talk with a lisp. Hold on. Just remembered. He was from some other island. Not him. The other one. The one with the limp. Didn't want to go. Said he was mad. Of course he was bloody mad. I mean, a wooden cow. Like what's name said. The king. No, not that king. The other one. He saw the goat. He said, I fear the Ephebians, especially when they're mad enough to leave bloody great wooden livestock on the doorstep. Talk about nerve they must think we were born yesterday set fire to it and of course what's name had nipped him around the back and put everyone to the sword talk about a laugh they say she had a squint they say she was pretty but it takes all sorts yes anyway that's how it happened now of course what's name i think he's called melicanus had a limp he wanted to go home we would they'd been there for years he wasn't getting any younger that's why he dreamt up the thing about the wooden what's name yes i tell a lie lavalus was the one with me pretty good fight that fight take it from me stirring stuff inspiring storytelling really it is. I'm, I'm very impressed you got through that. That I've had like six cups of coffee already today. That helped. <laughs> but it's it's the thing I've talked about a whole bunch in this podcast. My favourite comedy thing of like, how long can you continue to ramble? Yeah. And throw in little details like our Susan, who we don't talk to because of what happened at our Kevin's baptism. And we the still don't give her a good chimer. Yes. yes. I mean, we... <laughs> We talk to Karen now, but we don't let her borrow the good Tupperware, obviously. I mean, you wouldn't, would you? Not with someone who's got a haircut like that. And she's got one of those nose rings, which we're fine with. (laughs) And breathe. We're recording very early in the morning. I've had to (laughs) fill myself. I mean, I say very early. It's nearly 11. (laughs) I've had to fill myself with coffee. (laughs) All right. right, So we talk characters. Characters. Yeah, we've got a lot of characters, considering this is the last part of our... uh, look at pyramids but yeah let's start with philosophers yes um i had fun researching this whole section because like i said i have a vague my brain has wandered into the realms of old greek philosophy in the past oh, i'm briefly. very sorry yes i briefly studied it it's really hard to talk about because so much of what's being joked about here isn't just the philosophical concepts themselves but the way philosophy was taught and discussed and spoken about and it was a very weird mix of art and theatre and yeah when I was researching stoicism I kind of went down a little rabbit hole of how public philosophy was and you know you'd go into the town square and shout your ideas out and have people shout back and and you were saying it was theatre? Yeah, you'd have these theatre pieces. I'll talk about that a bit when we talk about symposiums and stuff. Okay. But the idea was uh, that you'd have these performances that were really a framework for uh, investigating a philosophical concept uh-huh. uh, where these philosophers would be writing their peers as characters into these pieces and then using them as mouthpieces for their own ideas. And there were big debates 
And the idea was always uh, metaphors and allegories to try and communicate ideas. I mean, it's all kind of a precursor to physics well, trying to understand how the world works. Take off allegory on the true shall make you fret bingo card listeners. <laughs> I think I've been pretty good about not misusing allegory recently. I actually mean it this time. <laughs> allegory, and this time I mean it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was allegorical. That's for each man to decide for himself. We won't hold it against you. Sorry. <laughs> so Zeno... Zeno, Zeno. So this is this bit made me laugh so much. This is the Axiom testing station, and Zeno trying to prove that tortoises are very fast. So this is a reference to uh, Zeno with Z's paradoxes. Uh, so an axiom is a statement or proposition which is regarded as being established, accepted, or self-evidently true. Okay. So an axiom is something you can use as the crux of your argument because it is widely accepted as Drop true. Drop something, it falls. Yes, that kind of thing. But gravity, ph- philosopher philosophy uh more philosophical so Zeno had these three paradoxes and from what I understand um and someone offered to explain them paradoxes paradoxes (laughs) someone offered to explain them to me in a lot more detail yesterday but I pointed out I understand them just enough for it to be funny when I try and explain it (laughs) I don't want to learn anymore (laughs) but these were written kind of in response to some Socratic thought and the idea is not to really prove things as such, but to question things with these. Okay. So there are three, three main ones, I suppose. You have the arrow paradox, which is where Zeno states that for motion to occur, an object must change the position which it occupies. And he gives the example of an arrow in flight. Okay. In any one durationless instant of time, the arrow is not moving to where it is or from where it isn't. Sure. Um, and it can't move to where it is because no time elapses for it to move there. Yeah. It can't move to where it is not because no time elapses for it to move there. It can't remain where it is because it's already, it can't move to where it is because it's already there. Mm. So every instant of time, there's no motion occurring. Okay. And if there's, everything is motionless every instant and time is composed entirely of instants, you cannot have motion. So motion doesn't exist. I think stop motion animators would have something to say about that. Yes, quite possibly. Well, (laughs) They can argue with ancient Greek philosophers if they want. They may well do. I think a lot of them are quite mad. I'm now just imagining at Ardman Studios them regularly holding seances to yell at Zeno for saying that motion doesn't exist. <laughs> um, so where did tortoises come in? Sorry, I think I missed a bit about the tortoise. Also, there's two more paradoxes. There's a paradox of Achilles and the tortoise, which is where we get the speedy tortoise idea from. Achilles is in a foot race with the tortoise. Achilles allows the tortoise head start of 100 metres. If each racer starts running at some constant speed, one faster than the other, after some finite time, Achilles will have run 100 metres, bringing him to the tortoise's starting point. Mm-hmm. But during that time, the tortoise has run a bit further. Mm-hmm. It will then take Achilles some time to further run that distance. By the time the tortoise will advance further and then more time to reach the third point. So whenever Achilles arrives somewhere the tortoise has been, he still has some distance to go before he can reach the tortoise. Now in our um, axiom testing station with unresolved <laughs> postulates, we are using arrows in the place of Achilles, probably because Achilles wasn't handy. Yeah. So because the arrow shouldn't be able to move because there's no such thing as motion. Yeah. And because it needs to catch up to the tortoise who is constantly moving. Uh-huh. Yeah. The tortoise should always be faster than the arrow. I see. This is and the longest the... explanation of a joke we've done so far. I'm liking it. 
but I'm and not then... going to pretend I 100% get it. <laughs> oh, no, me neither. It's all to do with uh, the uncertainty principle. And the oh, child- that. Well, yeah. you know, the uncertainty principle. The whole point is to not get it, isn't it? Or to like be said, at least a little iffy about it. This is like proto proto physics. It's all very odd. Uh, the third paradox is the dichotomy paradox, which is uh-huh. that distance basically repeatedly splits into smaller and smaller parts, and it's therefore infinite, and therefore there's no I such thing as motion. Yeah, 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 yeah. So these this are the paradoxes. very long winded way of explaining why you're late to work. Yeah, this is, uh, well, look, as motion is technically impossible, and there was a tortoise in front of me, the fact that I got here at all. <laughs> exactly. I'm only half an hour late, and the distance here was infinite. So, frankly, I think you should give me a raise. Yeah, I'm going to try that and see what happens. <laughs> Let me know. Probably my boss will start <laughs> wanting to discuss theoretical physics with me, and I don't need that kind of negativity in my life, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Um, so on top of the philosophers we had a couple of mathematicians we did there's some fun little references so you've got uh pythagonal obviously mm-hmm. pythagoras aesop which has also corrected in the show notes to show notes to europe that's close enough but aesop is referenced to aesop in his fables and there's a nice reference where they talk about the tortoise beating the hare in a race which is obviously the tortoise and the hare Parable. oh sure 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 yeah well, it was aesop was he ancient group uh greek as well then yeah i think he was greek probably not fully contemporary with like plato and achilles i've never really looked into the background of aesop to be fair no, i've got just... i've got book his well a book of his fables but I i've haven't... got one with some lovely illustrations oh nice i was looking at one but you know money for things i will barely look at yeah there's there's also one called antiphon which uh, so i double checked uh the annotated pratchett the l space thing to check some of my references mm-hmm. uh and they mentioned that Antiphon's probably a reference to Aristophan, who was a very famous ancient Greek playwright. Oh. But um, Antiphon was also, there was a guy called Antiphon who was a very well-known orator in ancient Greek times. He was one of the earliest proponents of rhetoric. Oh, we like rhetoric. Yes, we like rhetoric and logic, and he was a big rhetoric and logic guy back in the ancient Greek times. Also, an Antiphon is um, a term for call and response singing. So Antiphony is call and response like what should we do with the drunken sailor oh okay 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 yeah Ooh. uh so antiphon uh the word for sort of the word antiphony comes from antiphon and it's like i said it's call and response yeah which um brings us kind of on to end us the listener so in socrates plays mm. which like i said were kind of a mechanism for explaining philosophical concepts he would have something of a call and response character where he'd say something and the character's response would be, yes, Socrates, tell me more Socrates. I'm listening, Socrates. And it, you'd have like... In, in, ancient, Greek, like, <laughs> in ancient Greek theatre in general, you'd have this the Greek chorus who would who would have responses to certain things. So it, it ties in nicely with Antiphon. And then you've got this character of Endos the Listener who is effect- effectively that character from Socratic dialogues. Okay. It's the second man in the dialogue so one person can explain and the other person can go, hmm, Oh yes, interesting. This is kind of highlighting how ridiculous that would be in a uh, non-structured conversation. Yeah, I mean, you say that, but both of us have a tendency to go on at length while the other person interjects with, hmm, well, interesting. Yeah, that becomes awfully apparent when I have to edit one track of our uh, conversation. (laughs) I'm just going to mention that I love Saganol's hatred of maths. 
because it very much reflects yeah it very much reflects my own feelings about advanced mathematics which is kind of a confused flailing of the mind the diameter divides into the circumference you know it ought to be three times you think so wouldn't you but does it no 3.141 and lots of other figures there's no end to the buggers do you know how pissed off that makes me yeah that's pretty I, much how i feel that's good uh, some other characters we've got kumi uh priest, that's his little coup. second evil priest yes he's kind of fun because like Dios is, was kind of the antagonist in the last section and then he's not so antagonistic here. He's just trying to sort of maintain order. Like he's very well-intentioned and Kumi comes off as this, I'm going to be sneaky and evil. And he, he wants power for the sake of power. He wants yeah. change, but he also wants everything to stay the same. There's a lot more human motivation behind him. Like in the last section I was on about uh, the cleverness of Dios being exposed as completely non-corrupt. Whereas yeah. Kumi, Kumi is the evil priest one would expect in this situation. Yeah. And I like that, you know, Kumi becomes this high priest at the end and Tracy is having none of it. Speaking of Tracy. Speaking of Tracy? Uh, it's time for Purple Post-It 2, Electric Boogaloo. Purple Post-It 2. This time it's personal. Two, po- two purple, two post-it. <laughs> the long-awaited sequel. Okay, so I said I said last week when I was complaining about the writing of Tracy that I was going to contradict myself a bit. Did. Uh, so there's this excerpt from, I think we're still in book three. She was definitely flowering. Back in the old kingdom, she'd never yeah. apparently had any... <laughs> she'd apparently... Flowering is an awful word to use about. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, back in the old kingdom, she'd never apparently had any original thoughts beyond the choice of the next grape to peel. But since she was outside, she seemed to have changed. Her jaw hadn't changed. It was still quite small and, he had to admit, very pretty. But somehow it was more noticeable. She used to look at the ground when she spoke to him. She still didn't always look at him when she spoke to him, but now it's because she was thinking about something else. So I think what's kind of trying to happen here is that she's very stereotypical and tropey in the first few sections of the book because when you take her out of the stale time of the Old Kingdom and put her somewhere fresh she becomes able to be intelligent and communicate because she's outside of that. So she's a stereotype when she's in old, stale time. Now she's got new life breathed into her. She manages to be a lot more than a stereotype, Mm -hmm. which is a really clever idea when you look at the whole themes of the book and needing time to change and move on. And you look at what Pratchett was trying to do. He's parodying fantasy. And that's what I was saying. Is it parody if you're just doing the thing? It kind of works. Yeah, It was parody. He was doing the thing. But... But I must um, say, the stereotype trope bit, as I said last week, wasn't really the bit I had an issue with. Um, well, no, it's the ridiculous sexualizing. Yeah. Which, if he'd done it so she's ridiculously sexualized and all the women are in the, while the book is in gel, and then when you come out of gel into fresh time, the women get to be full, more well rounded characters that aren't sexualized, that would be a better way to do that. But you, yeah, you get to a few pages later and this is when they're on Chidda's boat and she's not dressed. She'd chosen a red court dress such as been the fashion in Port ten years previously with puff sleeves and vast concealed underpinning and ruffs the size of millstones. Tepic learned something new, which was that attractive women dressed in a few strips of gourds and a few yards of silk can actually look far more desirable when fully clad from neck to ankle. I think it's like, 
It really seems like Pratchett wanted to get that preference across, didn't it? Because it said mm. Tepic learned something new. We literally explicitly went over that preference in the last section. And the section before. Yeah. Like, okay, we get it. Like, women can look nice in dresses and we don't think they should be in tiny strips, of course. Like, okay. Yeah. Pay. It's this really, like, um, I'm very anti any kind of toxic men at all because there's been so much shit coming out in the last few days about loads of toxic men in comedy and oh has there yes just stay off the internet it's better okay. um it's this whole well i'm a woke feminist you know i don't like to look at scantily clad women i don't feel like they should have to get their tits out for me to look at them it's, it's like yeah you're still looking at them based on how attracted you are to them they're still bodies first and people second and that's yeah. Almost every woman in this book is talked about in relation to her attractiveness. Like the yeah. only ones that aren't are like the dead queens. Like dead relatives get to be non-sexualized. Pretty much everyone else that's kind of dirty. That's because they get get kicked back into the Madonna part of the Madonna whore complex. Exactly. And like this isn't this huge Terry Pratchett was a dickhead and he's cancelled. This is like he can do so much better. So it's very upsetting. Surprise! <laughs> Yeah, this is not the podcast for that. <laughs> this is just yeah. that he could do so much better. We know he could and does so much better. So it's it's hard to read a book where, even where he's sort of trying to do better and it looks like he's trying to play with a stereotype, yeah. it's still there as appearance first. And yeah, also, Tracy gets I a cool saying, I know I do. Like, this is over 20 years ago and... Things improve, things get better. Yeah, All I... <sighs> The only reason I even notice this kind of stuff in this book is because it's Pratchett. Like, the bar for Pratchett is just set about a mile higher than for almost every other male writer I like. And so that would go completely under the radar for me if I was reading it in Ben Aronovich or whatever. But also, you know, to give some of our listeners perspective who haven't thought about how it feels to be a woman reading this sort of book, it is upsetting to get every woman in this book sexualized because as i said last week it makes you feel like it's not really for you Mm. get out of our treehouse so yeah so that was my little tracy but i really love i really love her ending i like her and Mm. chidder i like her very much taking control and going fuck you kumi i'm having a bath well that's it like i said i i mean you had a bit more of an issue with the propy bit than i did um apart from the weirdest physical descriptions um I didn't have any issue with Tracy. I really liked her as a character, mostly throughout. Like, I liked it's the less I have... specifically ditzy It's less I had an issue with, with the tropiness is I wanted to point it out because what he's trying to do with the tropiness mm. is clever. Is yeah, she's no, not yeah. being tropey when she comes out of the old kingdom. Yeah. And yeah, I, I do like her as a character. I like the way she very much owns her power at the end. Mm-hmm. Um that whatever relationship she ends up having with Chidder, who I also have a massive soft spot for, will probably be a bit, wouldn't be them getting married and running a kingdom together. It would be fine, you're in port, but also can you do me a trade deal while you're here? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, Kuft. Kuft, yeah, the founder. Mm. Didn't have like a whole lot to say about him, but, you know, I quite like the idea of these founding myths um nobleness tacked on yeah. years later when really it was just a bit of a thief running away with his family and coming across a river and thought fuck it we'll sit down uh, and then the sphinx i was wrong a oh. bit so i'm glad just... it didn't kill you for it 
Well, no, I, I didn't actually have to go into a bit of riddling. Um, so I was talking last week about the fact that the riddle of the Sphinx is this whole idea of what's this in the morning, this in the evening, uh-huh. blah, blah, blah. And that might be tied into the belief that Ra lived an entire lifetime in a single day. But uh-huh. I looked the Sphinx up in my handy Brewer's Guide to Phrase and Fable. You say handy, that's the size of your head. You gave it to me. I know. <laughs> I've marked this with the... I've got uh, the paperback. <laughs> I've marked this page with the five of spades. Is that uh, significant in any way? No, it was the first one I pulled out. Excellent. It was my card. The Sphinx of Greek mythology is quite distinct from the Egyptian Sphinx. It was a monster for, with the head and breasts of a woman, body of a dog or a lion, the wings of a bird, a serpent's tail and lion's paws. Had a human voice and was said to be the daughter of Orthos and Typhon or the Chimera. Uh, she inhabited the vicinity of Thebes, setting the inhabitants riddles and devouring those unable to find solutions. The Thebans were told by the oracles she'd kill herself if the following riddle was solved. Uh, what goes on four feet, on two feet and three, but the more feet it goes on, the weaker it be. And uh, I was right that this did have some links to Oedipus because Oedipus is the one who solves the riddle, which is oh, good sure. it's a man. Is it's, it's... Uh, Typhon and what's it? Are they, um, or, you know what I mean, Titans? Or were they? I don't know. I don't know enough about ancient Greek mythology to answer that question. Okay. So yeah, so it's it's distinct from the Egyptian, but there probably was overlap because obviously a lot of the ancient Greek empire was like Thebes, kind of almost was Egypt. Thebes was Egypt. Yes, but it was thought of as ancient Greek within that context of the Sphinx, if you know what I mean. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Thebes so, was yeah. like the religious capital of Egypt for a very long time. I was, I, you know, my knowledge of geography and ancient <laughs> Greek empires is limited at best. So apparently it's distinct from the Egyptian Sphinx, but I assume there is obviously some overlap. And that's where the riddle comes from. It's, and it, yeah, like I said, it's in Oedipus. Oedipus is the one who mm. solves the riddle. riddle. Excellent. Before like shagging his mother, I assume. Cool. So locations. Yeah, speaking of Thebes, we're in a Phoebe. Hey. Uh, I really, so Ephebe is like, we already mentioned the ancient Greece parallel with yeah, yeah. philosophers running amok. Darling, we've got philosophers again, call the exterminator. <laughs> How would one ex- uh, go about getting rid of a philosopher infestation, do you think? Throw a tortoise at it. Excellent. Do you know what? I think I might have been wrong. I think you're right about Thebes. And I, no, ain't, sorry, I'm looking this up because I think we're, both right in different millennia cool that's what really matters <laughs> so oh no no there's two i think there's, there's a thebes things. comma greece and a thebes comma egypt look we have there we so go <laughs> we have been so vague on a lot of things that i'm sure our listeners know a lot more about than we do i'm assuming we'll get some emails on this one i know but i don't want to perpetuate the confusion we are both right there are just two of them i'll perpetuate your confusion darling (laughs) is that a threat or a promise darling darling uh historical imperative of war yes that's the one (laughs) it it just made me laugh when they realized the gel's gone so sort and if you have to go to war and tepic's like but but why is that historical imperative isn't it it's what we do we have wars um oh yeah i also really like the only other location thing was the reference to the lost city of e in the e. great neff yes i thought might have been atlantis reference but as you pointed out in the episode we didn't record <laughs> probably there were lots of, that we don't talk about <laughs> yeah there are lots of lost cities um and i imagine 
a lot surrounding cities in the desert. So if you think of where the most ancient cities are, we're looking at uh, the Middle East. Um, yeah. And a lot of massive climatic, climatic, climate changes, uh, destroyed civilizations and things. I've been listening yeah. to a podcast called Fall of Civilizations, and it's very good if any of our listeners have any room in their schedules for further, listen to us very first. long podcasts. Yeah. So once, yeah, but that was, I mean, that should have been more of a little thing I liked, which is what we're going to talk about next. Mm. There's a line I really like, um, and sorry, I'm finding pages again. <laughs> They're talking about to clasp 2A and how he's mm-hmm. been flattened slash dimensionally challenged. Yeah. Um, you could clean the ice off windscreens, looking forward to a life of cleaning the ice off windscreens and sleeping cheaply in trouser presses in hotel bedrooms. And there's just a little footnote saying, well, this is a loose translation because obviously to clasp didn't know the words for ice, windscreens or hotel bread- uh, bedrooms. But squiggle, eagle, eagle, vase, wavy line, duck translates directly as a press for barbarian leg coverings. And I like the <laughs> fact that there's lots of round world metaphors in these Discworld books and the footnote just sort of acknowledges, obviously they don't actually know what these things yeah. are, but it works for the sake of description. Yeah. I like the fact that he doesn't try and force his metaphors to fit the setting. Yeah, because, because... That, that would get tired. Yeah, yeah. And especially this early in the series where there isn't a lot to build on to then make these sort of metaphors from like in later yeah. books I think he does do it a bit more because then you've got 30 books of world building to draw yeah. on we'll keep an eye out this is just a teeny tiny bit we're just talking about leaving a feed to try and go back to jelly baby and Tracy says I went down to the harbour there's those things like big rafts you know camels of the sea ships <laughs> said Tefik which I like because it's just a direct inversion of camels being ships of the desert. And I enjoy camel-related wordplay, as I've discovered this month. Yes, I enjoy that. So my new specific niche. Okay, good. Don't get the hump with me if I don't enjoy it. Oh, Jesus. Ah. <laughs> I was going to try to not make a hump joke for this entire podcast, and I just couldn't do it, Francine. Finger guns. Well, it's not as bad as the hump joke I assumed you would have made, so we're good. Yeah, I was trying. Well, it is pre-watershed. Yeah, there's a well. They're at the symposium. Mm. Uh, a fight breaks out over truth. Uh, what was it? A philosopher had, aver- had averred that although truth was beauty, beauty was not necessarily truth, and a fight was breaking out. What is um, a symposium exactly? So a symposium was like a big thing in ancient Greece, and it was the these were like formal gatherings of, uh-huh. of say less than 10 they ha- would be, they would have rooms in their houses specifically for this with safers all around the outside where everyone sits and discusses things these were like so when they say it's a knife and fork tea that's not far away from the truth like they drink a lot eat a lot and talk about these higher concepts mm. um no no women were allowed this was a manly thing because obviously everyone knows brain's brain overheating yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they didn't develop enough to really cope with philosophy until like the late 18th century i think i can hear my womb screaming at the thought Yes, my, well, mine's gone for a wander again. <laughs> so symposiums were a very real established thing. But as I was saying, that, so the truth beauty thing, I thought it was may have it was also a reference to the Keats poem, which is something like Ode to a Greek, Greek Urn. Right, something right. on a Greek Urn, which uh, ends with the line, beauty is truth, truth beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Plato, obviously, as I said, theatre would exist to examine philosophical concepts. Mm. So Plato's Symposium was a play that discussed the nature of beauty. So it was a play about a symposium, mm. 
rather than just being like Plato had a symposium where they talked about this. He had oh, a play meta. about a symposium where he, he basically wrote in his philosophy buddies and the Socrates that Plato has written concludes that the highest form of love is the love of true beauty. It's the ideal essence of beauty, the unchanging perfect form of beauty. Platonic ideal. Yes, it, huh. because this, was, this wasn't something Socrates said. This is something the Socrates that Plato wrote said. Yeah. This is where it all gets very confusing whenever I try and look into philosophy. It's like, wait, no, that's quoted Socrates, comma. <laughs> Plato basically wrote fan fiction about his own philosophy buddies. <laughs> like Plato wrote Socrates fan fiction. This is how he's simplifying this. It's like if after we had a disagreement on a point on this podcast, I went and wrote a chapter of a book where you agreed with me instead. Well, I think it's more realistic if you said this. I feel like we really haven't done a good job of explaining ancient Greek philosophy or understanding it. But to be perfectly honest... Well, that's not really the subject of this podcast. Well, there is that. And I'm very open to our listeners emailing us and explaining how we're wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you could then summarise the emails for me afterwards, we'll be grilled and golden. <laughs> I was about to say we'd be grilled cheese, and I really want a cheese toasty. Yeah, well, you're going to have a grilled cheese toasty. I'm having a baked tomato and mozzarella for catch thing. That is not relevant. Vulture-headed gods, Francie. What about them? Oh, that's mine, isn't it? All right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Vut, did you say his name was? Vut. The- yeah, Vut, the vault-headed god, is just a fun recurring joke throughout this book where they're trying to get rid of an ugly statue, which in yeah. itself I quite liked. But I thought I'd have a quick look to see any vulture gods in ancient Egypt, and unsurprisingly, there is at least one. Um, yeah. Although, interestingly, in ancient Egypt, vultures aren't weren't seen as they are in our culture. So vultures are kind of a metaphor for swooping in and taking advantage of a bad situation now yeah yeah yeah. whereas they were seen as quite pure nurturing animals um in ancient egypt um often assumed to all be female interestingly but nekbet was an early goddess that kind of evolved in importance um and she was kind of the protector over the pharaohs so when you see the pharaoh depicted or a symbol of the pharaoh depicted quite often you'll see a vulture over him and that's Mm -hmm. not as one a modern person might think like you know vultures hovering it's a vulture protect it attack attack. most importantly it snack on carrion lovely i've really got to stop dead memeing um anyway she was actually eventually the patron goddess of upper egypt um and if you look uh I don't know. You've got the internet, haven't you? If you look up um, Egyptian vultures, they are quite pretty. Um, I, I'm not going to go off. Right, I'll, I'll bring yeah. one up and she. Because I will you see? start uh, up a bit. Oh, yes, they are quite sweet. Yeah, I'll, I'll link one in the show notes. But they look like just like bald-faced, cute chickens. Chickens aren't cute, Francine. Yeah, that's why I added the modifier. Yeah, terrifying, <laughs> evil little dinosaur bastards yeah fair one they do smell and steal your cigarette if you sit down in the back door we have both have very specific specific. (laughs) (laughs) your mileage may vary um so yeah um ozymandias you've put down i have i have a brief reference near the end wasn't it 
Yeah, so we already had a little Keats reference with the truth and beauty thing. So we're going to mm. talk about another romantic poet because I will shoehorn them into everything. Go wildly from era to era. Yep. Well, um, the romantic poets, there was a lot of weird obsession with ancient cultures because of, you know, where we were, England was being very colonial and taking places mm. at the time and ransacking them for bits of history without concept. Mm-hmm. Um, especially Byron travelled through Greece and like fought in greek wars of independence that were happening at the time right yeah and like hoarded relics and things he was an old fish wasn't he he was a very old fish i do highly recommend uh the podcast i mentioned before you're dead to me the history Uh one the episode on byron and the episode on mary shelley they're both fascinating okay if you look at the noble blood podcast they've got one on elizabeth lamb so we could trio it up Yes. So yeah, there's, it's, it is just a throwaway line, really. The bird said more with a simple bowel movement than Ozymandias ever managed to say. But uh-huh. it's one of my absolute favourite sonnets ever, so Thank I'm going to read you. it out anyway. Oh, yes, the whole thing, please. Because it's not too long. It's definitely in the public domain. So <laughs> It's quite old, but yeah, I'm a massive Shelley fan. Um, right, poem. I met a traveller from an ancient land who said... Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half-sunk, shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Oh, God, it's a good poem. It is such a good poem. It's it's a general theme I love as well. Just um, well, so tenuous is... links to the far, far, far away past is very much my aesthetic. So this is a cool thing. I again, I was checking references on the annotated Pratchett which um, we'll link to in the show notes. It's amazing yes. if you want. Thank you, Space. <laughs> Thank you, Space. And uh, the guy annotating it pointed out that um, Ozymandias was actually written in like a little competition Shelley was having uh-huh. with another poet. They both had to write a sonnet on this topic. Sonnet duel. Yes. So Shelley's sonnet is called Ozymandias. I can't remember the, go- the name of the guy who wrote the other one. Uh-huh. I'm not going to read it out. It's a quite nice sonnet. But the title... On a stupendous leg of granite discovered standing by itself in the deserts of Egypt with the inscription inserted below. I fucking love that title. I really like long, descriptive, absurd Victorian titles for things. He's not Victorian, is he? Is he? Shit, where's Shelley? Uh, Early 1800s, so... Okay, yeah. Um, But yeah, I, I love those, like, the three line headlines and the ridiculous subtitles in old books that's oh yeah no it's brilliant <laughs> so if we Conan take Doyle the Shelley sonnet and give it that other dude's title perfect perfect little, poem mm. I was about to call it, it perfect really little happy. Frankenstein of a poem which you know calls yeah. back to us like that <laughs> <Mention> <laughs> the thing is a thing <laughs> uh, the only other little thing I wanted to point out is that they're discussing whether it's the century of the cobra or the century of the fruit bat and this <laughs> is a fun thing that this is one of the earliest mentions of it. The centuries all have ridiculous names like the, the cobra and the fruit bat and the yeah. years get silly names as well. And now the Discord Emporium like announces the name for the year. Yeah. I can't remember what this year's is now. It's something to do with a trout, I think. Yeah. 
maybe a car. But I th- I, because it's so weird to try and figure out how time has actually moved within the Discworld books. Mm-hmm. A lot, but also nothing happens over the span of like 40 years. I thought it'd be fun to keep an eye on what century we're in. Okay, so which, which are we in? Fuck knows, Cobra or Fruitback. <laughs> so we'll start next time. I'm going to drag this country kicking and screaming into the century of the fruit bat. Cobra, said Gern. So we're in the, we're going into the century of the cobra, but I think okay. it'll be the century of the fruit bat. I, it's not very consistent. Yeah. <laughs> um. So going on to slightly longer talking points, Dios as a character is very interesting in general. Uh, by the way, what a fucking depressing ending for him. Uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Depressing. He doesn't like change. He doesn't want to move on. And sort of having the opportunity to continue and yeah. do the whole cycle again might be what he wants. Like, I couldn't really imagine Dios relaxing in an afterlife. Perhaps it's not depressing for him so much as just the concept of it is very depressing. The idea oh, yeah, very that much all so. this ridiculous heartache and crocodile throwing is going to. Like you know, throwing two the crocodiles. I don't think they throw the crocodiles. Uh, is going to repeat itself while the this. Leg Sorry, of the I'm just imagining Dios tailors off into the distance. God, oh no, I've gone to a time travel metaphor. Abort, abort. Egyptian high priests. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still imagining Dios just yeeting across <laughs> the crocodile. <laughs> Yeet. Um. Sorry. Egyptian, Egyptian high priest. High a high priest, priest meant uh, the chief priest for any god, so it wasn't like priest in charge of all the priests. It would be the yeah. high priest of Ophla, the crocodile god, or whatever. Um, the most powerful ones were the high priests of Amun, and uh, Amun was another very early god that evolved hugely in importance and power over the millennia, I guess. Uh, he eventually fused with Ra to become Amun-Ra. Right. Um, but he's mentioned in the very earliest Egyptian texts. And as he grew in importance, the high priests of Amun grew in importance. And at, at one point, from about 1080 BC to about 940 BC, uh, they were effectively the rulers of Upper Egypt. They had so much power. And so it was almost like two f- forms of government with the figurehead of the pharaoh and the Right, from Moon making all the actual decisions. Um, so, so it was more of a political position than a religious one. Yeah, exactly. And there were kind of dynasties within the priesthoods, and like, so someone who's steward of this pharaoh, his son might then become the high priest of a moon or something. And it was all very, yeah. you know, cartelish, probably. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I thought that was particularly interesting. And then as I was looking that up. Um, I found something called the Karnak Temple Complex, which is apparently one of the main tourist attractions in Egypt at the moment still, because it's it's like a massive sprawl of temples and monuments and chapels um, for different gods. And as different gods grew in importance, pharaohs would dedicate some time and money into building up their bit of this huge complex. And it's incredible. I mean, it was under construction from like 2000 BC to about 300 BC. Wow. Um, Yeah, I know. Um, uh, Most of the grandest buildings are from the new dynasty, which is like when those high priests were at the most powerful. Um, And so there's a lot of stuff devoted to a moon 
And yeah, basically ends in a fun little circular fact, which is uh, Karnak is the secret lair of the antagonist of Watchmen, who is... Bias. Yeah, finger guns. Which is um, a pleasing totally. little bookend to my wiki rabbit hole. Yes, I do like Watchmen. You should really watch the TV series. It's very good. I know. I, I want to reread the graphic novel first, though, because it's been a decade since I did. And I thought we had a copy and we don't. And, you I know, need to get a new priorities. copy of it. Yeah. Um, so democracy. So democracy. Moving on to light and democracy. Light. <laughs> yes. Not totalitarian priests. I assume they were all a bit totalitarian. Oh, yeah. I mean, I there's um, assumption. It's, this is one of my favourite comedy devices which is the comedy of ignorance and trying to explain something that the character the character trying to explain something that they don't really understand but the yeah. reader obviously does and this is tepic trying to explain democracy in a phoebe to tracy so like they've got something called democracy and it means everyone in the whole country can say who the new tyrant is one man one vet for electing uh, and there's a joke about doing something with balls that i'm assuming Oh, um, some of the early de- bulls, did you say? No, bulls. Oh, bulls. It, there's like a castration joke about bulls, hence the jokes about vets, but I don't really understand. Oh, I see, right, because like, like some early democracies, you went and put balls in a certain tube. Yeah. And in because, fact, in some places now, they're still. Yeah, there was balls in a certain tube, or it was just a show of hands, and they'd just guess. Cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, but he's explaining who can vote and saying, uh, everyone has the vote except for women, children, criminals, slaves, stupid people, people of foreign extraction, and people we don't like the look of for various reasons and lots of other people. Yep, sounds about right. So I had a look into some old voting rights stuff, yeah. which was entertaining. Returning to a previous topic. Yes. Should we get a bit suffragette? Oh, get your uh, purple so- rosette out, love. For the lads, for the lads. <laughs> I've got a vote for women badge somewhere. <laughs> so in the UK, prior to 1832, only men over 21 who owned property over a certain value could vote. And in 1832, there was the Great Reform Act. After the Great Reform Act, property allowances were expanded. So it was also uh, householders who were paying over £10 a year in rent, which in today's money is £780. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, wow. so more men rent over market 20. went mental, didn't it? <laughs> More men over 21 could vote um, after the Great Reform Act. The property allowances were expanded Uh and then broadened even further in the 1860s and 1880s. And then it was 1918, it was women's suffrage. Uh And then it was changed so that there were no property requirements for men. Women over 30 who met those property requirements that had previously existed for for men could vote. And then men in the armed forces who were over 19 were able to vote. Uh Uh, So, yeah, so when people talk about women getting the vote. Some white, rich women got the vote. Um, 1928 was the Equal Franchise Act, which made women equal to men in voting rights in that Uh everyone was 21 plus with no property requirements. And 1969 was the Second Representation of the People Act, which is when it became everyone over 18 plus. There's still lots of voting restrictions, though. Um, If you don't hold a British passport, even if you live here full time, you can't vote. Um, people in prison That's can't vote. That's pretty normal, though, isn't it? Like citizens yeah, yeah. of uh, whichever countries are generally the only voters. Yeah, there was talk of whether or not EU citizens would be allowed to vote, and obviously they're not going to be able to yeah. now. Uh, yeah, it, but incarcerated people voting is something that's been, and previously incarcerated people voting, that's something that's been discussed and debated in some circles. Huh. Um, and how much of your rights as a citizen do you give up and for how long? Um, 
let's not go into it. Um, no, I was, I, I was going to say something on the topic and then I thought, actually, we don't have all day, literally. So <laughs> <laughs> That is a whole tangent for another time. You want me to go off on a very long rant about that, then we can schedule it. Um, so I had a look at ancient Greece and Athens, which uh-huh. was sort of the birthplace of democracy. And the only people who could vote were males, free. Shock. Originally propertied, later also had to be born to two Athenian Athenian-born parents. So when you say free, is that not slave? Basically. Huh. Um, they were the only ones who could become citizens, and it was only citizens who could vote. But those ah. potential voting citizens were limited to those without a personal or inherited mark against them, an atimia. <clears throat> so that That's could be... subjective. <laughs> yeah. Your parent did something fucky, and you're not allowed to become a citizen. How and bad so the were... mark has to be to become inheritable. But it wasn't even the full pool of these potential citizens who could vote. These yeah. were um, we gatherings don't like the look of, say, of up to 3,000, and it would be that three, those 3,000 people who were voting. Oh. Yeah, and it would... There, there's lots of stuff about how it varied. But yeah, so I thought that was interesting. But I, I really I like the... The idea of picking someone randomly to be the leader of a country every year. I know that therapy. would be very impractical, but I'd like to watch from a distance. Yeah, I'd be... It, interested to look at what it does to a society long term if everyone knows that they could become a leader at any time yeah if we had like a spare planet to play sims with (laughs) yes maybe next next reality darling (laughs) um so if we could veer back into egypt you wanted to talk about mummies in horror and i'm well up for that because it's one of the coolest horror tropes yeah well like you know you're quote was more about the horror of being trapped inside than yeah, but yeah, it, yeah. it's very much a horror moment and the whole idea of this lurching mummy zombie army it's a mm. very horror thing yeah in a way that was not put across in a horrific manner in this book, no it, it, which is it's cool. making comedy out of something that would yeah. be a horror thing so i had a look at like the background of egyptian mummies in fiction mm-hmm. not just horror um so we're looking at like 19th century and french british colonization of egypt and africa yeah um and at that point as mummies start appearing in fiction uh it's really like a weird often feminine sex object thing it's that whole colonial romanticism like the exotic foreign thing but corpse but corpse but there'd be things of sort of mind control and they're coming back to life and they're perfectly preserved under the bandages and i mean but still still all very icky one of the funnily enough one perfectly of the, uh, preserved for a corpse really isn't the same as a person like if you look at the perfectly preserved corpses pulled out of bogs in various places like yeah still not still not super attractive to be honest <laughs> well we take off the bandages and there's a nubile young Egyptian woman underneath <sighs> who opened her eyes and is so happy to have been rescued from her tomb. This sort of bollocks was right. Okay, yeah, yeah. There in this new, new angle on the damn Guess who distress. did one? Guess who did one? What uh, wankers uh, do we have? Oh, God, I don't know. Bram Stoker. Oh! <laughs> I don't know if I, I mentioned... Know he did a was... fucking ancient Egyptian book. Uh, jewel of jewel of the seven stars is about an archaeologist i I did not read it because i don't hate myself i don't know if i've mentioned on this podcast before how much i fucking hate bram stoker but i I feel like we talked about that last week somehow i'm not sure how we got that in but we definitely slagged off dracula yes we've definitely slagged off dracula so yeah bram stoker right uh the jewel of seven stars and that was something to do with some mind control 
Egyptian artifact and an archaeologist, and there was a, definitely a nubile young woman in there somewhere. Uh, I Queen had... Tira. Yes. Bram. No, I don't want to read about Bram Stoker. Show me the no book. There was also an Arthur Conan Doyle story, Ring of Thoth. So this this was a popular thing. Mm. Uh, you start getting the monster stuff in the 1930s with uh, Boris Karloff's The Mummy, and it kind of joins the zombie tropey Dracula, Undead, Frankenstein canon, the Hammer House of Horror stuff. Yeah, which, at which yeah. point it becomes cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I would say that there's some issues to do. There's still some issues with exoticism, but it gets such almost the exact same treatment as Dracula and Frankenstein that I don't think it's quite so bad with the cultural appropriation as the weird sexual stuff is, to be honest. Does it count as cultural appropriation if you're looking at an ancient imperial force? I don't think so, no. When we get into imperialist versus imperialist, whose culture is appropriate? It, How can it, one be woke over several millennia is my question. My genuine know. question. I, don't, I really don't know. I'm not trying to be a dick. I don't want to say it's not problematic that mummies became a horror trope, but I feel it was less problematic. like Than being a weird sex thing, yeah. At least it's yeah. only problematic on the one level. There's not misogyny in there as well. And there was, you know, lots of horror is based on the dead coming back to life hence mm, frankenstein mm. hence dracula and hence mummies which were mm. dead bodies reanimating um, sexy, also, sexy dead bodies reanimating Ugh. the 90s mummy films are amazing i feel like oh yeah fuck that in yes because brendan fraser. Brendan fraser. <laughs> i love brendan fraser so much oh he's so cool he's so precious i need to see him in something more recent because i i well, he I stopped acting the last thing I saw him in. Oh, well, that might be why. Yeah, I think he's just starting to get back into it now. There okay. was a whole long-form, really lovely interview with him that if I can find, I'll send you. Oh, please do, yes. Yeah, he I had like a bit of a like an unpleasant time from the sound of it and oh. stuff, but he's getting back into it. But yeah, um, love the Mummy movie. But yeah, so Mummy started getting romanticised again in the late 20th mm-hmm. century, and I, uh, to add to my Bram Stoker, just like, also, Anne Rice can fuck all the way off. <laughs> all the way. <laughs> all the way. Fucking hate Anne Rice. All the way <laughs> off her fucking turrets. Absolute dickheads. She wrote... She, I don't think she's the only one who's done this, but she's definitely one of the ones I found a big reference to, and this is like late 80s, early 90s. I can't remember the name of the book now because it, just reading the synopsis pissed me off, but it involved a Ramsey's who was a mummy that had come back to life and now he was immortal but still really liked to fuck. And then there was an angry... (laughs) Immortal pharaoh, down to fuck. There was like an angry... Wait, which which way do you swipe for yes? I have no idea. I've never... I got in this relationship before Tinder was a thing and then I got married, so... (laughs) Yeah, did I? Ramsey's Um, the damned, the passion of Cleopatra. Yeah, there's like a zombie Cleopatra who gets some elixir of life spilled on her, but she's like half mummy still or something. I, I read the synopsis and oh, this is it. 2017. It's a series to Ramses the Dam in 1989. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. So yeah, mummies have become less of a horror trope and apparently more of a romanticized thing again, which again, it's corpses, Great. dudes. Yeah. I know vampires are technically corpses as well, and they're not super down on the vampire fucking, apart from um Damon Salvatore in the Vampire Diaries because Ian Summerholder's really hot. So yeah, so it, but I thought that was interesting, and I really wanted to end on the point that I fucking hate Anne Rice. Yeah, I could, I think that's an excellent point to end on. Who's also like a psycho who gets in massive fights on the internet, refuses to have an editor, refuses to have an editor. 
Yeah, she doesn't like her novels being edited. Well, she's a which twit explains then, why they're all she? awful. Jesus Christ, who doesn't have an editor? She also wrote a really, really bad, like kinky Sleeping Beauty series that is like the least sexy thing I've ever read. Are there consent things? I don't know. It's kind of kink within a weird fantasy setting, so everyone's into it, obviously. But like, a lot of it just doesn't make physical sense. Oh, <laughs> and there is just like so much spanking. Yeah, not in a good way. They're, like I said, they're the least sexy books I've ever read. But you read them plural. I wanted to see if it got better. <laughs> I had like a sick, sick curiosity. Anyway, moving on from Kinky and Rise Sleeping Beauty. Uh-huh. Language in it. While we're in ancient Egypt, Francine. I'm not sure how we're going to segue to that. So let's just go right into it. Um, <laughs> Was there much spanking in ancient Egyptian language? Uh, not in the hieroglyphs I looked at, but I did not get very far in my goal to learn hieroglyphs in the last few days i'm afraid i can't believe you didn't learn an entire ancient written language in two days francine what the fuck well it turns out there's a lot of them which i shouldn't have been surprised about because it's again millennia we are talking about (laughs) so basically i started looking into this because there's the whole bit where they go into the first tomb which turns out to be diosis rather than kufts um and there's some writing on the wall and they need to translate it through ancient person talking slightly less ancient person citing so working their way back so we get us to tepikaimon yeah um and i thought that was very interesting concept so i looked into how much ancient egyptian writing changed over the centuries so if you go all the way back archaic egyptian is what we call the very earliest inscriptions which kind of uh proto writing so they're hieroglyphs that depict things and mean things but they don't have any real complex grammar um, and then if we look into what we would call texts, the oldest texts are in Old Egyptian, capitalised old, um, which along with Sumerian is one of the oldest recorded languages we have. Uh, so there are examples from like 3300 BC. Cool. But the first complete sentence, one with a finite verb, which is like verb that can be the subject of the sentence, um, mm-hmm. is from 2690 BC. And it says, hand and squiggly line over cobra and horned viper, two sandy tracks above squiggly line, duck above horned viper, looking blank. Okay, but translator, <laughs> he has united the two lands for his son, dual king Peribsen. So like it's that. talking about the, the uniting of Upper and Lower Egypt, which is pretty cool. First sentence ah, nice. to have. I wouldn't be surprised if an archaeologist scrubbed something else out. It was fucking read amounts or something. And then, yeah, you move on to Middle Egyptian, um, which included cursive hieroglyphs, uh, which is not hieratic, which is actually more cursive, which is not demotic, which is actually more cursive. And obviously, the problem is we don't know how any of it sounded, which is the point of yeah, this whole no... friendship. <laughs> like, we're talking millennia. We can only assume the spoken language changed drastically. But people hundreds of years on, maybe thousands of years on, would have been able to read stuff their ancestors wrote yeah, to an extent. And it even really if they wouldn't have been able to hear a word of it. That is, I think, all I had to say about hieroglyphs. Although I will link cool. a couple of fun resources I found, including just like a list of all the hieroglyphs I was going to try and translate a better version of The True Shall Make You Fret into hieroglyphs but then i ran into things like 
second person grammar and gave yeah, up let's... fairly swiftly. Again, probably not <laughs> realistic to learn an entire ancient language in two days. No, I mean, if we wanted to do proper analyses of all of these books, we'd release an episode every year or so. We've done lots of research into references and themes and stuff, but I wanted mm. to bring us background before our obscure reference to the kind of oh, overall sure. theme of the, the book itself. Okay, okay. Uh, What's that then? Is this <laughs> kind of thematic fear of change and stagnant time. Yeah, yeah. And Dios is convincing everyone to not destroy the pyramids and change everything. The kingdom will be just another small country. All that we hold dear, you will cast adrift in time, uncertain, without guidance, changeable. And for Dios, that's abhorrent. Yeah. The idea of changing chaos and not having control, but it has made the, the place stagnant. You need chaos and change yeah to advance and i thought it was interesting to look at it like in the context of the book you know things become better and healthier and maybe gel loses some of its power outside of the valley yeah um when fresh time starts coming in and change starts happening but maybe it doesn't but maybe it doesn't and you get the feeling that a Theban sort sort of look at the country in a, oh, well, it's nice that someone keeps the old ways. I wouldn't do it, but it's nice that someone yeah. does. It's like people who still take tea at a certain time every day. You know, it's nice for them. I wouldn't do it. But it's interesting to look at, like, in our modern context, because I think we, in our late 20s, nearly early 30s. But we've seen so much change and shift in society and technology in the last, mm. in, in just the time we've been alive. And obviously every generation can say that, but I th it's getting faster and faster where we live now. Yeah, I mean, the fact that Generation Z has grown up in a almost completely online world and we were in that transitional stage, I think that's going to have like effects on our ad on their adult attitudes as compared to ours in ways we just won't see for another 10 years. But Yeah, and in what, in some ways it looks like it could be a good thing. Society becomes more global and less about borders as you grow up constantly online where there are there are still borders, but not no, in the same way. You're going to argue the lefties and the righties by arguing for globalisation, Joanna. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the lizard people. Oh, no. Um, I'm saying it's arguably a good thing. I'm not yeah, saying yeah. it is. <laughs> Please argue amongst yourselves. <laughs> yes, do do discuss globalisation, dear listeners. But yeah, so uh, but it made me, you know, I wasn't super looking forward to going into this book. I thought the story was a bit funny and confusing. I don't understand geometry, but I've really enjoyed it this time round. Looking at it through this lens of like how time stagnates and yeah. then doesn't. It's really given me a new appreciate from it. I think it's a really interesting, lovely theme. It is. And because it is such a distinct theme, I mean, a, a, a lot later we'll get to a book called Small Gods that revisits quite a lot of the points about religion and ancient Greek. But it doesn't feel like it's a repetition of any of this. No, it looks like you're sort of writing to expand the concept further yeah. and play with it a bit more. Yeah. And I really enjoy it. It is very good. I, the cleverness of just bits like visiting a Phoebe, which is, you know, a sidebar. Um, it's a cameo of a location, yeah. but it's just so cleverly done. Like the amount of knowledge and references stuffed into every paragraph. Well, the whole Sphinx section mm. and taking that riddle that is very well known and ancient and then going, right, but actually it's a bit fucking silly, isn't it? Yeah. He was a, oh God, he was such a clever man. He was. He was a clever man. 
Good old Terry. Right, before we completely depress ourselves, Francine, do you have an obscure reference finial for me? Uh, yeah, it's page 202 for me, which, again, I don't know why I bothered writing these down because I don't think this edition actually exists in any other person's reality. Um, <laughs> no, not the trousers of time again. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but anyway, it's going on about Chidish ship, which is called The Unnamed, which I didn't even look into properly whether there was a parallel to that. Um, which is referred to as a gin palace, spelled D-J-I-N-N, which you had to explain the joke to me because a gin palace is a what Victorian gin shop, was it? Or? Yeah, it was the gin shop started getting fancier to try and move the reputation away from bathtub gin and mother's ruin, which ah. is, it, it was like hipsters and gentrification, but in Victorian times. Nothing much has actually changed. <laughs> we are just going round in tighter and tighter circles. Oh, God. Oh, that's a really claustrophobic concept. Um, yeah, but it's getting faster and faster every time. I think we're Edwardian next week. All right, sweet. I'm, I'm into the, the uh, tailoring on that. But anyway, the unnamed <laughs> is referred to as a wallowing Alcazar. And I didn't know what that was. So I looked it up. And an Alcazar is a type of uh, Moorish castle um, or palace in Spain and Portugal. Uh, so the Moors being the Muslim invaders who ruled parts of Spain and Portugal sometimes. Yeah, so like the Alhambra in Granada yes. is the best example I can think of, which is a beautiful, beautiful place you should go to if you haven't. I haven't been to Granada and I should. You're quite right. Um, mm. Again, once this damn pandemic is over. This damn war. <laughs> That's um, cool. I didn't know Alcazar was the word for it. Yeah. Um, and I just like the idea of kind of a wallowing castle with we weapons in it anyway. Yay, I always learn something new with your obs obscure reference finials. It fills me with joy. That's the idea. But I'm very bad at uh, um, fact retention, so I forget it as soon as we stop recording. Well, luckily, I think we've kept most of the show plans in Drive, so. Oh, that's good. I can look them up again. <laughs> so I think that's everything you could ever say ever about this one book. Yeah, that, I don't, we, we didn't. We didn't miss any of the three billion references, I'm sure. Um, that is all listeners, you should you should tell us your favourite bits that we missed and we might follow up on them. Yes, we can That's do that. something we might do. Tell us if, uh, or just tell us if we were completely wrong about ancient Greek philosophy, but please explain things in small words. <laughs> With the minimum of mathematics. Yes, I'm quite intelligent, but I'm going to claim dumbassery for the sake of going through our inbox. <laughs> uh, so we're going to take next week off and have a little holiday. Yes, it's going to be very hot. A... Did you look at the forecast? I did. Next I'm week very is glad. Hot, I'm... hot, hot. I'm very glad I haven't gone back to work. To be perfectly yeah. honest, <laughs> I don't have to be in a kitchen. Uh, yeah, so we're going to have a little holiday, take a week off, and then we will be back in July. God, it's July. We've Guards, guards, the eighth discard level. We're very excited about this one. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be interesting considering in particular mm -hmm. at the moment. We're not going to talk about the book until we're recording the episodes on the book because we'll excite ourselves. Okay. So, yeah, so. Thank you. thank you for listening to The Truth Shall Make You Fret. Much obliged. Uh, if you like, you can follow us on Instagram, The Truth Shall Make You Fret. We're on Facebook at The Truth Shall Make You Fret. You can find us on Twitter at Make You Fret Pod. You can email us your thoughts, queries, albatrosses, castles, and snacks at The Truth Shall Make You Fret Pod at gmail.com. Uh, please do think about rating and reviewing us wherever you get your podcast because it helps other people find us as we are all slaves to terrible, terrible algorithms. Mm. Mm, the algorithms. 
I think they're, they're what came down and built the pyramids, wasn't it? Okay. No, aliens. Ah, sorry. Yes, carry on. And in the meantime, dear listener. I'll see you out for the last line of the book. Sighing, pulling the remnants of his robes around himself to give himself dignity, using the staff to steady himself, Dios went forth. This is actually the best time of day to get me focused. So you've officially seen me at my best and I can't claim otherwise.